out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Yes, that's us. Anyway, welcome. Hello, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. Always bring you the finest in indie pop and beyond, he says. I think beyond. Anyway, as you know, we always like a special guest. This week, it is the turn of Kirk Brandon. He of Spear of Destiny and lots more besides. So this is an interview I did a, um, a couple of weeks or months ago when he was about to do embark on an amazing tour this is the autumn of 2019 just in case you're listening to it sometime in the future 2020 etc so yeah this is it and um yes this is actually the first part and only part and i began by talking babbling really um about his kind of schedule that he had on during september um because basically he was going to be playing virtually every day throughout the month and um, I was saying he must be incredibly fit and also incredibly active because um, he's still releasing albums and this was Kirk's reply anyway this is it enjoy make notes I will test you at the end Kirk tell us all about it I'll say yes to all that apart from the last one <laughs> um, although I'm always out on my bike I'm always out cycling and no I don't wear Lycra um <laughs> It's, uh, I love cycling. I just, I've always had since I was a boy. It's oh. my eighth birthday. I rehabbed coming out of hospital when I was eight. Yes. And, um, I, thought, I, don't know, I just always cycled. But um, back to reality, <laughs> yeah, we're really looking forward to this September thing. And it's um, 35 years since One Eye Jacks, the album, which other people, a lot of the magazines seem to quote as this um, kind of. I don't know what you want to call it, legendary album release, whatever. Yes. And um, also to coincide with it, we've uh, re-recorded it, in actual fact. Yeah. And we've done a like an updated version of it. I ha- to be totally honest, I hated the original production. It just sounds, to me, to my ears as a musician, it sounds a bit twee. And it, it, it's, you know, symptomatic of the 80s where it was kind of like, everything should be pop. Whereas in reality, it wasn't meant to be pop. It's meant to be a rock album. Yes. Well, it was interesting but, because the 80s were the decade that I was probably more obsessed with than I should be, but um, that's life. And um, and I, I realised that there was two, well, there was probably more than two, but there was definitely two camps. There was that kind of Trevor Horn-esque production and then you had that kind of indie kind of sound on the other side and um, one had to put go into either camp. So did you get swept along with a slightly push being pushed into a sort of um, engineers and producers that you didn't really want but couldn't stop? Yes, yeah. I mean, um, with all due respect to the skills that they have, it, it, wasn't where, it wasn't where I was trying to go. You know, I was still loving rock music, you know, guitars, guitars and drums, and I didn't really want to make pop stuff, but I, I signed up to CBS Records, and they were intent upon having, um, you know, pop hits, you know. It, it was an enormous struggle, and it, I don't think either of us won, because I didn't get what I wanted, and they certainly didn't get what they wanted. Yes. <clears throat> Yeah, it sold a, a hell of a lot of albums, but to me, it landed in the wrong camp. They, they were trying to force it into pop music. 
which is not really what I wanted, what I've ever wanted to do. Yes. That wasn't why I started in music. I never <clears throat> wanted, you know, that kind of thing. Because, cause, um, you know, without giving too much away, but I'm in my mid-50s, and so, you know, I'd slightly missed the punk period, but sort of definitely hit it for the kind of that early 80s and then that next decade on. But you were obviously a bit more aware of the, 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 the beginning of punk and that kind of sound and scene. Yeah. Um, it, was a, it was a really funny time, the latter end of the 80s. You know, and it was kind of like a, kind of like a, a politically aware, whatever, if I can say that, kind of like a politically aware time for like young people. And, you know, it, 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 the music itself and the stuff they were saying, where it was the, the, the clash or the pistols, you know, it was kind of like, it was, I'm going to use a silly phrase here, it was have a go time. Yeah. And so you you were up there with your contemporaries and you were listening to what they were doing and it was exciting and it was aggressive and it had a point to it. And it was kind of, you know, it, it meant something. This wasn't pop music. This was, this was have a go time at everything. Establishment, um, absolutely everything. So what, what was your sort of musical kind of journey in, the, in your formative teen years? Because... Because I sort of, I suppose I'd have to admit it was the early 70s and it was kind of the early glam, then obviously David Bowie and, you know, and those kind of other kind of hits that you used to hear on the school bus, like, um, I don't know, I don't know, those kind of uh, middle of the road song, Chirpy Chirpy Cheap Cheap, stuff like that. But you you obviously would have been a bit more aware of what was happening in, in the latter half of the 60s. Yeah, I mean, I, I like blues rock. I like blues Um and I'd sort of come to like, you know, kind of like some of that Jamaican stuff as well. And uh, that was kind of exciting, you know, especially what at the time was, was really a strange beat. You know, the Jamaican beat was a really strange beat. So it's kind of, that kind of attracted me to it. Yeah. Where they, where they did things and everything was on the offbeat. And so it was getting away from just one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, you know, relentlessly through every song. It was um, it was interesting. Yes, because and, um, I, I listened to a lot of rock music, and you know you 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 took it, you know you you enjoyed it for what it was, you know whatever whichever band it was you were listening to, but you know we to be one of these people you'd have to be a stadium band, and there's no you know there's no way sort of little idiots living in London were going to be you know in a stadium band. Just, yeah. you know, guys playing a few chords and trying to write a few songs. And, and this whole punk thing come along and just extinguished, all, extinguished the relevance of being able to play in a stadium to be relevant. You don't have to play in a stadium to be relevant. Yes. And you could go down to a, a local pub and see some bands, and it meant something. Well, absolutely, because obviously um, on one side you had that kind of huge... Um, Emerson, Lake Palmer, you know, the Fleetwood Macs and, and the Eagles and that kind of world and yes, and Genesis and prog rock and then obviously the other side. But when you got your first punk band together, the pack, did yeah. that, was that something that you thought this was this kind of, um, I just suppose I was going to say, did, did you sort of have a moment where you thought this is what you want to do for the rest of your life? Um, 
Well, music, music was what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. How I was going to do it, I didn't know. Would I be able to do it? <clears throat> I doubt that very much. It was um, the punk rock, punk rock thing came along, and you know, by the middle of '77, it was kind of like it was almost over. It was just, it was then all the other bands that came in and took, and took over the the new wave, if you like. Yes. Um, I and it's debatable here whether it was ever going to whether what I was doing whether anyone would like it or people wanted to hear it that was completely debatable I actually thought it probably wouldn't and it was only to be truthful it was only at the end of the the pack's existence which was uh, I think it finished in November 79 in the last few months did, did people turn up to the shows and we actually had audiences, you know, really turn up. Before that, we played kind of anarchy squats and and just anything, actually. Yes. Did you ever play Stonehenge? I wish we had. <laughs> so you can't even get close to it. No, no, I just remember kind of when you mentioned squats and stuff, I always think of Hawkwind and Lemmy and Stonehenge, really. So when, you, when that finished and you got Theatre of Hate together... Did that feel like an exciting new adventure? Because obviously there was a few new members. So did that feel like a clean... Yeah, I mean, it, it kicked off. Um, we supported uh, Atletico Spears 80 at the Marquee, and that was our first show. And then immediately afterwards, everywhere we played was sold out. So it really was like a, a rocket. The thing just took off. Yes. Very exciting. And then, and obviously on that, um, your kind of first non-live album, West Westworld, it was produced by Mick Jones. So was that a bit surreal? One minute sort of listening to The Clash and then thinking, oh my God, that is that is a member of The Clash producing this record. Um, I, I, I just appreciated the fact that um, we, we were playing a place called The Venue in Victoria and in the lineup outside of all the people who were trying to get in, it was Mick Jones standing there, and I walked past, and um, the then the then manager Terry Razor knew him because he'd worked for the Clash, and uh, I said, "That's Mick, and it's Mick Jones." He said, "Yep." So I walked back and said, "Mick," and he said, uh, "I said, what are you doing?" <laughs> and Mick just said, uh, "I'm standing in a line waiting to go see a show." I went, okay. So well, you know, then Terry came up, and. Um, he just said, come with us. So uh, he came in with us and he, he just, you know, came in the venue, did his own thing, whatever, listened to the music. And word come back later on that, you know, he'd really love to um, be involved and pre- produce something, which is how we got involved with, with Mick. And we went on tour with The Clash. They took us on tour in the UK and Europe. And um, that's kind of like how it happened. Blimey. That is amazing. And obviously you were working with Billy Duffy, who, you know, the classic, you know, one of the great guitarists. Did you, when when you started sort of playing with people like that, did you think, you know, and your songwriting as well, did you think, God, we've got something really special here? Well, Billy, um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the best things about Billy to me, I mean, obviously he's a great guitar player, but he's just a really funny guy. And he's, he's just funny all the time, and he made people laugh, made us laugh, and 
you know, it's just a good, it's just a good guy to be in company with. So um, it just sort of clicked from that. Yes. You know, you can have virtuoso players and fantastic guitar players, whatever. But you know, character-wise, they might be difficult. It was like Billy was just a great laugh. <laughs> Tricky. Just Manchester guy, you know, having a laugh. Yes. Thankfully, yes, that's a good. So, did what was the sort of crossover between the Theatre of Hate and Spear of Destiny? Did you have a a moment where one door finished and and closed, and then you went right? This is my next project. Yeah, it um, Theatre of Hate ended uh, unceremoniously. There was a few issues, and uh, there's issues with the management, and um, it just without becoming long winded and getting into it it just folded and um me and stanley the bass player stanley stammers decided we'd carry on for another band um which is exactly what we did uh, we've got a jamaican guy called the cells james and um chris bell who was um <laughs> playing in the thompson twins we just finished with the thompson twins which you'll probably deny but whatever <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And did you, drama. Yeah. And did you, at that stage, because you had been in bands before, did it, I mean, it could have gone either way, you know, like often people put so much of their life into one band and when it finishes, you know, they're kind of broken hearted, really. And it takes them quite a bit of time. But obviously you, you managed to sort of navigate that emotional moment and start Spirit of Destiny. Did that, did that sort of come together quite quickly because you had sort of already done quite a bit of work working in two other lineups and you know recorded and played live yeah i mean it, it come it come together pretty quick um i i had the, i had the songs for it which is you know at least 50 percent of the battle so it was kind of i knew i knew where it wanted to go and and that was that was kind of like the impetus to get the band together and carry on. Yes, which was quite handy. Yeah. Well, I suppose looking back at people like David Bowie, you realise that he was able to, though he just stayed as David Bowie, so he didn't really have to fall out with himself. But he did sort of obviously pick up a different band at quite a lot of his different albums, which obviously, look back, you think, oh, that's a cunning plan. Probably at the time, it was probably quite hard. But then, you know, the great, I say, sometimes some people haven't always said this to about him, but John Peel gave you a... a session with the Spirit of Destiny. So that was quite early on in the band. Yeah, he gave us a few sessions, actually, yeah. And did that feel like, oh, thank God for that, we've, we've sort of had the slight blessing of the, the Mr Peel? Yeah, I mean, he, John really liked... Um, uh, he really liked Theatre of Hate. He really liked that. And um, actually, me and him had a bet. We had a bet over, at the time, Chelsea versus Liverpool, because he was Liverpool for a fiver, and um, I never got me fiver, but I won't hold it against John right now. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it, it, you know, someone like John Peel was, was very, very influential. Yes. And played fantastic music all the time. Well, he so was... Just to be even on his show was incredible, yeah. Well, that, well, one thing I've noticed and appreciate now, which I didn't appreciate then, was that there, that there were kind of these kind of quite influential gatekeepers, and you know, a John Peel show, you know, you know, he was just somebody, a play on a John Peel, um, you know, programme, gave 
that exposure to a bigger audience, which was kind of really important for a band who were beginning, because then that's kind of what you need. when Once you've done a few albums, you're kind of hopefully up and vaguely flying, or flapping at least, I don't know, one of those. One of those, you're flying or flapping, and it's either going up or down in a drastic sort of way. But the thing that really amazed me with the 80s is that you, and alongside bands like The Smiths, just brought out an album a year and just were on it. So, you you know, was everything just pumping glory at that stage? Pumping glory. <laughs> Plum. I've never, I, by the way, I've never used that phrase before. I don't know why I've used it then. I don't, I don't quite know why you're using it now, old chap. No, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. Pump, pumping's a bit of a weird word. Oh, um, well, no, but you know, you were on a roll, it was weren't just, you? It was exciting times and, you know, you you were moving in a slipstream where there was a lot of people, like you say, like the Smiths were around. Um, there, was other, there was other people that were you know, producing influential music at the time too. And, you know, you, you were part of something that was kind of like an un, like an underground thing. Um, it was moving in a direction no one really knew where it was going to go no. or if it would go, but it was exciting to be in it. Yeah. Yes, because I can remember, you know, one of the, I mean, you know, you probably get bored of having to talk about it, but the classic single, and I remember seeing the video. And in those days, seeing a video was quite tricky because it wasn't always that accessible. But um, yes, Never Take Me Alive. So can you, was that, when you wrote that song, did you think, my God, I've just sprinkled fairy dust over that little baby. That's going to go big time. Not at all. I have to be honest on that one. Not at all. It was, um, it was with um, 10 records and... Um, the uh, oh, I can't remember Richard Griffith, the head of Ten Records at the time, nice nice guy, and um, him and my then manager Terry Razor come to an impasse. Neither of them could agree that we were talking about what should be the single. And Richard Griffith just turned and said, "Well, what do you think, Kirk?" I just I said, "Never take me alive." He went, "Right, that's a single. That's it. Let's get a video. Let's get let's do this." And that's how that happened. Um, no more, no less. Yes. And did you enjoy making? Because video in those days was still quite... It's brilliant. We went out to New Mexico, um, Taos, T-A-O-S, and uh, we shot some of the desert stuff in Colorado. That was exciting. Um, I met some incredible people out there in Taos, and had a whole team of about nine or ten people on the shoot. It was just brilliant times. That's I met the uh, the Navajo chief. I was introduced to him, and um, he he was a really funny guy. He funny guy, and he invited me back to that. They had a big do coming on the next couple of days, <laughs> so come down and drink heap big fire water. And you know he was a funny guy, you know, <laughs> and um, you know just laughing. It's just a brilliant time. Yeah. And obviously that led on, you know, still going for it strong in the 80s, the price you pay at that stage, because, you know, because this was kind of an album a year, which is, I have to say, pretty amazing. Five albums in five years. Were you, how were you coping kind of physically, emotionally, mentally with this kind of output? It's okay, you know, you're a lot younger then, you've got a lot of juice in you and... 
you know, stuff was happening constantly on a day on a daily rate. You couldn't keep up with it. So you just had to get your head down and concentrate on what it was you were meant to be doing, which is writing music, recording music and you know aiming the ship where it's meant to be going musically. Yes. And you know, the the price was a was a great album. Great great songs on it. Um you know and record and recorded slightly differently. I, I went in a lot of it was recorded with just the drummer, Pete Barnacle. Me and him went in in the uh, in a couple of studios and recorded it. We had Alan Shacklock, you know, the um the guitar player um who produced tons of stuff at the time. And uh Alan was really lenient, you know, it's kind of okay, well let's just make it work, you know. And uh we did. And so most of it was just recorded me and Pete, Pete Barnacle. Yes. And it was it it, it 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 gave it a kind of immediacy and a relevance. Like, what are you playing? Are you is this relevant to the song? Will this will this work in the context of what's getting played here or not? Okay, all right. It is. It isn't. And we made decisions like that constantly. You know, every couple of minutes, what we were doing, and it, that gave it a real excitement. Again, you know, it's uh, exciting recording it. You know, being in a studio can sometimes be kind of other guys hanging about, you know. Yes. Getting, getting smashed. But, you know, on on this occasion, it was exciting, immediate, and we were, you know, we bringing out bringing out results, you know, every five minutes and what we were doing. Yes. We had to. Because Pizzati, 1987, is one of, for some tedious reason, I put down as one of the great years for music, because the releases that year are just extraordinary, you know, and I just think 87 is is, is a kind of a pretty special year. And actually, I think the 80s were as well, because from, you know, the Bundy Boys to all the indie stuff to early rap and, you know, the, I suppose, dance music, you know, there was just a lot of music and you had that, you know, stuff coming over from, you know, America, the grunge, the early years of the grunge, I suppose. But obviously 87 was also a difficult year for you and what happened can happen to all of us in some time. You, your health kind of got knocked on the head a bit, didn't it? Yeah, so, my, uh, my my health kind of like ruined a lot of things at that point in time. I was, um, got this thing called writer's syndrome and... It kicked off at that point, and I, I was basically incapacitated. Best part of a year, and uh, I started to walk again. But I rehabbed on my bicycle. Right. <laughs> I put me on the bike to turn the pedals. I said, like, "Can't. We're going to hold you up and push you." My then girlfriend, um, she was incredible. She was stronger than I am. She carried me, carried me down to the seafront, put me on a bike, and I just, I'd literally just moved down to Brian about two weeks before and um, this was my my Brian experience and it, was, it, was, it killed me, it literally killed me, it's an arthritic thing Yes, it takes the form of and um, <clears throat> we had that song So In Love With You which I think went to number 30 in the charts I think it is, and they had a top of the pops for us but um, I couldn't do it, I was up at the Royal Sussex having injections, and um, so I, I was out of the game. A bit of a shame for the song, because it was a really nice song, a really great song. Yeah. And did you have any inkling of, of 
you know, physical problems at that stage, or was it just something that hit you like a train? Uh, it pretty much come along and hit me, and uh, it happens within the space of a few hours. Like, you know, a ton of fluid on my knees, and I wasn't, I wasn't going anywhere, really. Yes. Off my hospital, which is where I was. So, um, and they called up and said, you know, manage, the management called up and said, you know, we've got to talk the pop spot for you with the song. Everybody loves it. You know, come on. I said, listen, I can't. I'm in the Royal Sussex. That's it. End of. Yeah. So was it, your was the rehab, was it just a very gradual process or did it? Did very, you... yeah. Really, really hard. I think I lost about 40 pounds. I wasn't in a, <clears throat> I wasn't in a very good state. <laughs> well, no. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, having a kind of a health scare myself a few years ago, it kind of uh, makes you think, blimey. Did you? Okay. It, <laughs> it's like you, you, you have a few appointments and a few scans and then, you know, you go in for quite, you know, and then they say, oh, we just had this MRI and this dark area on your kidney is... Um, we better we better get you in and have you opened up and have it removed. And it's like, oh my god, I'd never expected to hear the words cancer in my life. You know, it's like, I'm, but I'm too young. I'm, Sorry to hear you that. Know, yes, I know. And uh, but you recover. But it does. You know, the whole world is. Um, it's yeah. You suddenly you have a folder, don't you, of all your hospital appointments, or you know, and you kind of keep all those letters, and you can spot that letter when it hits the deck, you know, hits the mat at your front door, go, oh my God, it's from the doctors or hospital, you know, they want to see me again. So you, yes, so I I sort of can um, slight, I mean, you can't completely empathise because every illness or ailment is different, but you can sort of go, hmm, it's kind of a scary time when you have to walk down that hospital corridor, you know. Well, they're like, you know, in the old days, I mean, <clears throat> going back hundreds of years, it was people went to the church, and the church, would t- you know, the idea was to be taken care of in the, the next life, you know, and that's, they get, um, I can't remember, they used to pay for things, you pay the church to pay f- to pray for you, and as a word, it's not, it's not coming into my head right now. Yeah. But, um... And rich people used to give a lot of money and all the rest of it. So it's all about the second life. But today, the churches are the hospitals. It's not about the afterlife, it's about this life. Churches are the... Sorry, hospitals are the churches of the day. This is where life is. This is where life is um, divined. You live and you die in these places. Yes. And we're lucky in this country um, to have the... uh, the NHS, otherwise I wouldn't be talking to you. I've been dead several times over. Um, this is so, true. It, you know, <laughs> this is going to sound, re- I don't know if it's going to sound crazy, you know, I'm going to say it anyway. You know, who are we? Who is the nation? The people? Where's the health of the nation? Health of the nation is in these hospitals. They are the things keeping you, your children, your mother, your father alive. This is the reality. And all these politicians who talk about privatising and putting fees on everything and the rest of it, they're destroying what has been built up since World War Two. So it is worth defending. Indeed. Your life, the NHS, is worth defending. That's my belief. 
Yes, well, no, I completely agree. And I always remember hearing some comment that someone said, if you'd had some, if you took someone from, I don't know, 50 years or 100 years ago and beyond and showed them like the hospital and what people can do, they would think, you know, they wouldn't, they would think they were in heaven. I'm not quite sure if it was heaven, but, it, you know, you get the gist. And it's like they would just be going, well, I would have had that ailment and I'd have died. You know, but it's, oh, God, no, no, you don't have to die anymore. You could just have, a, have it sorted and then you'll be right as rain for another 40 years. And you think, God, that's, that's an extraordinary idea of how, you know, I would be dead, you might be dead, I don't know, if, 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 that, if that didn't, that little moment in intervention didn't happen and somebody is skilled enough to say, oh, yes, I know what we do here and there's other people around who go, yes, I'll do this, I'll do that, and they work on your body and, and hopefully one can, you know, navigate through it and then, you know, walk out. It's a, it's a strange world. It's a strange world. But, keeping the party lively, you then have to come back and think, right, I've got, a, I've got music to make, and Sod's Law was that album. So did that feel like a, a, a sort of um, starting again? Uh, Sod's Law felt to me like a bit of a departure, but I was just no longer... Um in that kind of headspace that I had been in for quite a few years. It was kind of like a... It was an amalgamation of things. It was a lot of different ideas coming coming together that formed an album. It wasn't a set of songs as such. It was just ideas. So it kind of... Um, it moved a bit left field, but I hadn't really realised exactly where I was in it. And... Um, I had uh, great producers, Zoist B. Held, German guy. He did U2 and um, Simple Minds and loads of people, everybody. And uh, he was a fantastic guy and um, very funny guy, very funny German guy who's into <laughs> anarchy, as he used to say. <laughs> anarchy is always good for people, you know, it makes them feel better. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, funny guy and... Um, he kind of helped me pull the thing together. Yeah. Yes. And did you... Cause, cause, so, so oh. I'm right here. Got that one right. <laughs> Sorry, man. I'm just, I'm just checking myself here. <laughs> okay. Yes. Yeah. No, because obviously in the 80s, you must have felt like part of a gang and moving forward in this kind of force. I just wondered how then, you know, like the 90s onwards how things were sort of feeling as, as kind of you had that kind of life-changing moment? In the, in the 90s, things, they really did change, didn't they? You know, people did move um, in different ways. You know, we had the whole dance thing come in and that kind of took over everything. We had the, the cult of the DJs, you know, which is, you know, the Oakenfeld and all the rest of it. And, you know, there's, there's room enough for everybody, obviously. But this this wasn't rock music. This was dance orientated, and that was that was what was going on. It moved on from kind of rock clubs and what what that meant. It moved on into dance music. So things had changed. Ostensibly, they changed on quite a broad scale in this country. Yes. As opposed to America or Australia or Germany, where it hadn't. Not yeah. really. No. They're still in, in the world of rock. 
Because one thing that I'd noticed with people, and I might have even mentioned this, <laughs> um, was that one thing that kind of knocked a lot of bands out that I've interviewed, you know, they've often got this five-year narrative, you know, they get together, they make a sound, John Peel would give it a spin, they would then get a few more bookings around the country and build up this little uh, fan base, you know, but they got very excited, you know, suddenly somebody in Glasgow, Leeds, Manchester, Brighton, Bristol would sort of say, do you want to play tonight? Or no, not tonight, <laughs> next week, and people go, yep, I'm there, you know, and and then the John Peel session would give people that other bit, and then the first album going, things are going well, then the second album, a bit tricky, then the dynamic of the band, the the kind of the business of the industry, if one thing didn't kill them, they, the other did. And then there was the other thing, the third, which is the kind of changing of the musical landscape. So a lot of those indie bands kind of thought, oh, we're just not into dance and I've had enough because we all hate each other now, so let's forget it. And then that changes and then you have Brit pop come along and then you know people go oh dance you know like you said there's dance music then you had all this kind of guitar based stuff as well that's suddenly appearing but then those bands suddenly like actually you're a bit you know we've had you for a few years so I can see being an artist is a difficult thing to do because the fan is a fickle person who suddenly either moves on or just has to sort of function and cope with what adulthood can mean so I just you know, and you as an artist are thinking, oh, good, now I've got a new album, but I've got to pick myself up, find the money or whatever, the musicians and the material. So it must be quite a difficult process, that world. Um, yes, no. Pardon? Yes, no. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, you, you, you're steered by whatever stars guide you, I suppose. You know, if you, uh, if I mean, it does happen. If you, you've been writing music for a certain kind of way for most of your life, it'd be strange to just jump ship and turn it into something else. You know, if you're writing rock music and the next minute you're writing, oof, 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 you know, on the bass drum, endlessly with uh, some sort of swirling keyboards in the background and a few shouts, then it'd be it'd be kind of a strange thing to do. And you dis disenfranchise yourself from the people that made you what you were. Yes. So I suppose a, a, lot, of, a lot of the time the message is, you know, it was to me anyway, just stay true to what it is you, you believe you, in what you're doing and, you know, belief in yourself. I suppose that's the, that's the bottom line. And if it, if it so comes that you want to make that other kind of music, then so be it. Yeah. You know? Because, cause, I mean, cause coming up to the, the current time, I mean, you you released an album last year. Yeah. Um, which has an amazing, really rocking song, The Medievalist, on it, which, again, it's like it really jumps out. So you obviously still have that kind of passion to hit the power chord and to write that anthemic rock, rock record. Uh, yes, no. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I never thought of it that way. I just wrote the song, you know. <laughs> it's very simple. It's kind of like, it's very, it's two, it's basically two strings constantly throughout the whole song. It wasn't power, it wasn't power chords, it's just, you know. Yes. Um, uh, but, it, you know, it was applied in a certain kind of way, obviously. And the band come in, so you, you get this kind of rock feeling to it, obviously. You know, it's actually a very straightforward song. The lyrics, that was, um, 
was prompted by um, what went on in Manchester and London at the time, you know, with the, um, the uh, what do you call it, the, the bomb at, in Manchester, to... Manchester at the stadium. And uh, I was actually there at the time, working in the studio there, uh, literally in Salford, just up the road, literally, literally up the road from it. Yes. So, um, and I was, I was there in the aftermath of it. And it, it, it's weird, you know, I, I live in the south, I live in Brighton, but I do think that for whatever reason, some, some affinity in Manchester, because for a lot of reasons, but, um, and I was there at the time, and it really, it really overwhelmed me, that whole thing of, you know, there's that square where all the flowers were laid, and the whole square was covered in flowers, and there's this uh, bright sunshine, and there was some guy sitting down the end of it playing this, like, African music, and it, it was, it got you out of your head, the whole place, the whole thing, and it, it was so, so moving and so sad, and sometimes you can't help yourself when you write a song, and that's why I wrote that song, Medievalist. It was about the, you know, this kind of sixth century uh, suicide cult they've got going on, and um, you know, glorying in death, and all them little kiddies in that stadium, you know, it's kind of. No one should have to bury their children, man. That was just like mind blowing. And it just come out of that. Yes. This is heavy. This is real heavy stuff. But then it was heavy stuff. It was heavy very stuff heavy. for them then, heavy stuff for them now. Yeah. It's a crazy world. I mean, one of the things, I mean, when, when you're sort of out there on tour, are you sort of, because most people, you know, sort of look out and there's a kind of mix of audience. Do you, are you sort of, I suppose, you know, I'm just wondering, do you sort of, are you discovering, or are, are people discovering new people, young, you know, a younger audience are sort of going, my God, I've just le- heard the first couple of albums from Spirit Destiny and we're here because we, you're the man who's carrying the baton. So I just wondered what your fan... We're, we're getting a lot of pensioners now, you know, there's a lot of pensioners coming. <laughs> yes, well, I, I kind of imagined you would get the pensioners. I just wondered if you were also getting some younger kids who were kind of curious and thinking... I must check out this this sound. We're, we're getting a, we are getting definitely getting some interest. That's, that's cool. That's yeah. really nice. Yes. Um, I'm not sure about the pensioners, but you know. Yes. I suppose they might be nearly in their late fifties. I just want, and 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 the other thing that sort of I've sort of found is that most people, they've had that kind of unfortunate experience. I just wonder how you dealt with it, dealing with all the publishing and and that kind of world as well. Was that something that you managed to navigate with any success, or was it? Um, when you say publishing, what do you mean? Well, I suppose you know. In the media. Or... Oh no, the ownership of music, the who owns the music, and who managed to sort of find themselves being paid for what they did and some people I've spoke to went no we didn't really we signed a bad deal and that wasn't the great side of being in music and I just wondered if you had managed to sort of with the, the amount of we, output that we, we signed a to be totally honest we signed a standard deal of the time which is pretty rubbish and um, you'll hear the words in in perpetuity 
I said to the lawyer at the time, I said, what does that mean? He goes, in perpetuity means forever. And I said, how do they do that? He goes, well, it's standard. They own everything forever. He said, you want a, re you want a record deal, you sign it in perpetuity, forever. I said, is there any other kind of deals? He said, no. And um, we abided by that. Like people of our time did, you know. Yes. People who signed deals in the 80s, that's exactly what they did. And but hopefully, you know, today, the, young, the younger people are, are taking note of what happened and they're not signing, you know, lock, stock and barrel. And hopefully, I know that some record companies are demanding, you know, access to their, their social media and their merchandise, you know, and all the rest of it. But hopefully they're, they're smart enough to... Um, Learn the lessons of the old dinosaurs, and um, I go, hey, you know, Dad, it's taken off of them. We shouldn't allow that to happen. No. And and I really hope they, I really hope they don't. This is true. And what would you say to your, you know, and you know, from all the experience you've had and and gone through, what would you say to an eighteen-year-old or your eighteen-year-old self starting out in music? I just wondered if there were some key things you thought that one bit of advice would have been just amazing. Um, you'd need a lawyer that bats for you. Doesn't bat for the companies. Um, yes. That, that's that's what I'd say. Yes. You know, and can appraise you of options. You need to be appraised of an option. Options. Yeah. You know? Someone that's going to go to bat for you. Yes. I guess it would be nice to someone to go through the document and say, you can sign this and this is the consequence and you can sign that and that's the other consequence. But I suppose it's known what the consequence is from your signature on that bit of paper. That's right. And that... That's right, exactly right. And that is Whatever right. you do will have a repercussion for the rest of your life. Yes. At 18 or 21 or 25, you know, you're thinking about, you know, a whole lot of, whole lot of other young people's issues. Yes. In fact, what you've just signed when you're 70 will mean exactly the same thing. So you better think about it. You know. it but will. that's what I mean. That's what I say. You need people to uh, go to bat for you. Yes. You've got your interests at heart. Because I noticed and read that you'd also in this decade, which probably feels like a long time ago at the beginning, you also had a heart surgery as well. So did, was that another one of those, oh, my God, I can't believe it, I've got something else now moment? Um, I had um, aortic valve replacement in 2009, and then I had endocarditis and aortic valve replacement in 2011. So... Um, Again, it will wake up calls to uh, wake up to reality. <laughs> um, and the subsequent rehab from. Yeah. Um, that, that really changed. 2009 changed my life forever. And um, I enjoy life so much now. I, I really do. Every minute of it. It's brilliant. I've got a daughter. She's 23. And um, 
I love her very much, and I love her life and whatever it is she does. You know, I'm like any dad. You know, you worship the uh, the ground they walk on, and you know, it's interesting. And life is interesting. It's brilliant. And you know, yeah, you have these these health um, issues, scares, whatever you want to call it. And if you're lucky enough to come out the other side, then you know, you kind of realise what life's about. Obviously, you don't necessarily need these things to realise what life's about. But, um, you know, it's a good place. It's a good place. Yes. Personally, I'm in a good, I'm in a very good place. Mentally, I'm in a very good place. Yeah, well, you sound it. And from, <clears throat> yes, the output that you've done since since that turn of the, the decade, you've been on quite a roll and also playing live. So you must feel... Is this kind of the happiest or the most content that you've been in your life? Yeah, I'm absolutely. I produce music now. The you know we do it ourselves. We uh, make the time, make money to go in studios and make make albums that you want to make, as long as you want to write. There's no contest with any. Uh, company or their executives or their A&R department or whatever, you know, you're doing what you want to do, which is what you want to do. Yes. And do you... uh, Double affirmative on it. And I was going to say, because obviously now that you're probably sort of playing, you know, both, you know, solo shows as in, you know, just the band, but then also festivals as well. When you, you know, like you've got this Rebellion Festival in Blackpool that I think they've got about a million bands playing... When you bump into your fellow musicians and band members, do you sometimes feel like, wow, you know, going up and swapping stories or just giving each other a hug sometimes, thinking, God, we've su- we've survived this weird and sometimes murky world that has been rock and roll? Um, I wouldn't necessarily give them a hug. No, no I wouldn't either. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you don't know whether they've had a good wash, you know? Yes, I know. Uh, but I just wondered if, if you know, because sometimes when you're younger and you're in bands, there's probably a little bit of weird rivalry. But then as you get older and you have loads of life, ex- life experiences, you think, actually, I don't really care anymore. We're not, not veering for the top 10 anymore or the top 20. And, um, you know, you stop sort of saying weird little snidey things in the press about each other. I'm not saying you did, by the way. But um, but then I you sort of... I did. No. <laughs> and then sometimes you see people backstage and you think... Oh hi, matey. You know, you know, how's it going? I just wondered if you feel like it's a it's a nicer place to be now. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll listen to anybody. I listen to what anybody does now. You know, so maybe in the past I might have been you know, prejudiced against listening to this or listening to that, but now, literally, I'll, I'll listen to anyone and see the worth in anything. So, um, you know, you got to go. Got to kind of lighten up about it eventually. Yes. And uh, you know, everything's permitted, as Mick Jagger said once. This is true. And obviously, you know, he's a great, almost a great role model for most people on certain parts of his life. But his health, you know, his fitness and being able to bounce back from, you know, his little ups and downs of heart problems. So. It is. I mean, is it the thing that when you look at the, the sort of the generation before you, you're thinking, "Well, my God, they're still in their seventies, and you still can still be doing doing it until for another ten years." 
with any luck, with any luck. Um, be a nice thing. I'd like to see my daughter grow up. Yeah, be a nice thing. And what does she think when she sees you live on stage? She thinks I'm hilarious. <laughs> she thinks it's really funny. <laughs> she does these imitations of me. And, it's, and she's got it, you know, she's absolutely spot on. And it is funny. I, I think, uh, personally, I think I am funny. I don't know whether you would or not, but I do. And uh, you make fun of me, and it's great, you know, it's great. Yes, it's good to laugh at yourself. <laughs> you got it. Because <laughs> someone else will. <clears throat> you might as well get there first, as they say. Anyway, look, this has been great. Thank you ever so much for the interview, and also Liam for sort of um, fixing the, day, the time, because that was really appreciative, and having a landline, which is even double excitement. You're yeah, so, really lucky. I yeah. am. I am lucky. Most people go, landline? What's that? Granddad. No, I mean, it's lucky. He, he just discovered it a couple of hours ago. <coughs> oh, and excellent. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> I know. He just plugged it in to see if it worked, and it did. <laughs> oh, wow, that's so lucky. But look, I really hope it goes well for the next couple of shows you've got, which is bizarrely soon. And then you've got your September tour, so, you know, it, yeah. it's probably time to get those under the belt, go on the bike ride, get your stamina, and then hit September with a vengeance. Absolutely. Yes. Well, Absolutely. look, I think the last... Nice way, talking to you, man. And the la- I do really love the last album. I think it's a real, you know, it's a gem. It's it's great. So it's... it's well, the Tontine album. Yes. Yeah, there's some great tunes on it. it yeah. I mean, it's always nice when you kind of have a listen and think, oh, actually, there's something really rocking here. So, um, and something vital. I suppose that's the thing you like. That's, that, that's the word. That's good. It's kind of got that, oh, yeah, there's an urgency. There's a bit of a kick-ass vibe and and that's the thing that as a punter listener whatever one calls oneself who listens to music you think yeah i like that that's that kind of gives you that energy that i can never be 18 again but i still like to have that oh actually i might play that song again right away you know once it finishes and i suppose the medievalist was one of those songs that i did i was i was very curious with that track i thought what is that all about and now you've explained it <laughs> a very sober song, I'm afraid. It is a very sober song, yes. But look, it's been brilliant. And like I said, you know, you've, you know, been the soundtrack to so many moments of my life. So thanks for all that. And um, I really hope Thank it goes you. well Thank in the future. Okay, take care. Nice one. Take Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye.